So my name is Peter MacDonald. I'm uh, one of the English fellows at St Hughes College. Um, I uh, study and do research and teach literature from the 1880s really to the present day. And uh, one of the reasons I'm in this conversation now is I've just written a book about um, apartheid censorship called The Literature Police. Um, and it's a book that uh, links up with uh, a number of other fields and inquiries and uh, so opens up the possibilities of discussion of an interdisciplinary kind. And so I'm in conversation at this moment with my colleague at St Hughes, uh, David Robertson. Oh, I am David Robertson. I'm a um, professor of politics in the university as well as a, a fellow of St Hughes. And I'm primarily, I suppose, a political sociologist and most of the interests that I have, which I share with Peter, come from that part of my being. But I'm also increasingly work more or less as a constitutional lawyer. And the other thing that he and I have often spoken about, which clearly touches on this, are constitutional doctrines of freedom of speech, what sort of defences a vehicle of court system will accept and understand. And in fact, in a forthcoming book of mine, there is a major section on South Africa on the constitutional court, uh, part of which does focus around post-apartheid uh, censorship problems. Great. One other thing that actually surprised me uh, coming to your book, Peter, was, and this is just ignorance on my part really, was in a sense how late, and from my point of view, how curiously late the setting up of a serious censorship regime in South Africa was. Knowing nothing about it, I just assumed it was a matter of inheritance from the 19th century as it was in, um, let's say, in the United Kingdom, uh, or certainly an early 20th century phenomena as with the United States Supreme Court. The fact that in some ways it didn't really get going until the 1950s when the rest of the, let's call it Western world or whatever, the rest, the rest of, the, of the cultural units that South Africa must have seen itself in were at really quite a rapid rate peeling away all forms of censorship. So, I mean, that, that immediately surprised me and I dug around in the book for, for explanations of this. And the one that, uh, that I picked up and I'd really like to talk about and ask you about, uh, is the the way in which it appears to have started, or much of the drive for censorship, appears to have started from an attempt by the Africana intellectual cultural elite to protect or perhaps to create their own ethnic national identity. Whereas more normally censorship has been a matter quite literally of protecting a moral sense. I tended to get the feeling here that protection of the um, of young and impressionable Afrikaners from immorality was more the um, the surface the the uh, if you like the the justifying argument for a much deeper attempt to either protect or even to create an ethnicity now I have my own which I won't mention here my own guess as to why that might have been the case but first of all is that roughly right I think it is right. It's just one one caveat I would add, really, um, is that I think, uh, so. I mean, just very quickly in terms of the, the history of South Africa, just a, l a little bit of detail to put add, add in there. It's crucial to remember that the Afrikaner Nationalist, the National Party, which is the kind of the... Uh, um, the political expression of Afrikaner nationalism at its, at its fullest, um, only comes to power in 1948. 
So uh, until then, you have a, from 1910, the creation of the Union of South Africa, till 1948, you have various tensions around a largely Anglophile united party. There's, there's a number of political configurations, but it's broadly, if you like, one that looks towards Britain still and the one that is much more strongly separatist. There's, there's all sorts of versions in which that grow, grows up and, and so on. But eventually the separatist ambition is articulated politically in 1948 with the National Party's victory. And it's after that that you move towards grand apartheid being set up. Um, so the initial censorship board, which was set up primarily as most countries around the world were in the beginning of the 20th century starting to deal with film, where governments and around the world had much greater concerns about the consequences of film. So the first board of censors really covered mainly film, and that was set up in, 19, in the early 1930s. Following an Irish model, I think you said. Which Based on an Irish model, absolutely right. Based on an Irish model in the sense that it was a government body. Whereas in the United States and in the UK, it had been an industry-based body. They'd actually resisted going to making it a governmental body. So you had the censorship board there. In fact, its powers did get extended in, in, in the later 30s to imported books mm -hmm. as well as uh, film and so on. Um, the interesting thing is that that system is in place. And then in the 40s um, and, and into the early 50s, the real driver initially for apartheid censorship is not so much an intellectual elite. Um, in fact, the intellectual elite are opposed to the driving force of, of, of uh, the behind censorship, which is the church groups. And it's interestingly, it was mainly Dutch reformed church groups. So it was a clerical uh, Afrikaner elite that was calling for this uh, with, with moral anxi anxieties about the, you know, the moral depredation of the, of, the, of the folk and the young people. But interestingly also the Catholic Church was involved, the Anglican Church was involved, Jewish groups were involved. There, there was a lot of agitation from many church groups in, in, the, in the 40s. I was going to ask that because I mean, on an alternative sociological take is what um, some people have called a moral panic and there one would expect, I, in fact I specifically meant to ask whether the Catholics got in on this because throughout Europe they were still of course clinging to, uh, to a fear of, um, if you like a genuine fear. <laughs> misplaced with genuine fear that people would do immoral things yeah. as opposed to an attempt to prop up, create an identity for the people. And so that that is genuine, is it? I mean, at the beginning, it really is a religious, religiously motivated reaction to immorality. Exactly. And, but it's also interesting, it fits in precisely with all the anxieties going, and in fact, they refer to and cite <laughs> all the anxieties going on in Canada, the United States and Britain about the spread of pornography. Um, that the you know great greater dissemination of pornography, um, easier access. That this is this is having a uh, so you you know you get you get a, a Frederick Wortham's book which they cite again you know the seduction of the innocents also mm. about comic books actually you know horror horror comics and action comics that these are having a morally uh, um, damaging effect on the young. So that's a, that's a widespread panic, and it's and it's the 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 Afrikaner church groups and other church groups in South Africa are are certainly part of that. They're also adding their differences, but... The Do they see, I mean, because the reason for what perhaps I, maybe it was mistaken reading of your book, but one thing that kept, keeps cropping up is a reference by the Afrikaner leaders to the problems of the urbanisation of the society. Yeah. So are they, do they see their population as peculiarly at risk to moral contamination? Yeah. Because unlike the, um, the English whites, they... They haven't, if you like, they're not inoculated to it. There are these poor, innocent, 
farm boys and girls who, because they may not stay on the farm, are vulnerable in a way that others might not be, and therefore especially needing protection. Is, is there some element to that? Absolutely right. I mean, that, that in a sense, it's their anxieties, um, and these are where the anxieties do start to shift into the intellectual elite in, in the 50s. Once the, once the government decides that it is going to set up an inter, a censorship system to cover internally produced books as well as imported books, that's the, that's the crucial difference. The board mm-hmm. doesn't cover in, internal books, internally produced books, until the 1960s. Is there any reason for that, or is it just that they never that, crossed their mind initially that good local they covered guys the, would write them? They covered the courts, handled them in the usual, the usual way that you would say... Obviously, would, yeah, That's yeah. right. They, they, there was no need to have a board covering them. Um, but uh, the... The move, uh, you, you're absolutely right that the, 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 there's the two, the, the intellectuals, and the, what will interest you is that the, the leading figure behind the commission of inquiry that set up the, the under, into undesirable publications was actually a sociologist. Yes, I noticed um, that. Some pleasure. A man it's, called um, Jeffrey Cronier, who is 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 unique in the uh, the otherwise the always unhappy story of apartheid ideologues. He's kind of uh, an, an extreme case in many ways, but none, anyway, he was a. He was uh, particularly exercised by, at that point, also the the depredations and damage of mass culture. Also, that mass culture is associated with cities. It is urban cultures, and definitely the sense that you've got a rural um, uh, Afrikaner. The sense of the Afrikaners is deeply attached to the farm, deeply attached to rural backgrounds, but now moving into the cities, and what this is going to do to the folk. So that is absolutely, that demographic factor is behind it as well. I should remind you all personal that it's only in Britain and uh, continental Europe that sociologists are assumed to be left-wing. Um, <laughs> most American sociology departments are centre-right, however. Yes, but, um, absolutely right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I, perhaps if I can explain why, why I was so intrigued by this, it really involves stepping back and assuming I haven't read your book and know nothing about it. Somebody tells you that there was major efforts, uh, state-sponsored efforts to censor publications in South Africa. Well, you might have guessed that. And you would immediately assume that it was about and only about um, racial conflict. Uh, And that the protection of young Afrikaner lads from moral pollution and so on was never more than facade. That This was justification. Uh, It was protecting the state or the state power and the straightforward black versus white um, boundaries. And that's the story, in a sense, that I expected to read in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I wasn't prepared, really, for, for this, um, if you like, autonomous protection, either, either of the churches or the protection of a sense of morality, or, or the ethnic protection uh, for the Afrikaner people, Afrikaner literature, Afrikaner culture, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which is, of course, what makes it all the more fascinating that there was there. But at what point, then, does, does this shift? Because I, I'm, I'm guessing that however genuinely tied up it was with uh, a much more worldwide um, traditional moral sphere of, of the 20th century, uh, and however much it was initially tied up with the need to protect the African special vision of the world, at some stage, and probably before very long, that did slip more and more into into being a false, not a false consciousness, but um, a mendacious consciousness. It's a story you're telling to justify a much simpler thing, which is keeping the blacks in their places. Yeah. Uh, tied up with genuine moral panic, I mean, in, in, even in the constitutional court cases I've heard, uh, read, 
there was this fascination with the notion of pictures which show white women or black men. But, mm -hmm. but, so I mean, I'm sure there was always that sort of atavistic side. Yeah. But there must have come a time when all of this stuff became much more of a facade. Mm. When, when and how is it? Well, there's perhaps just one extra thing we need to add to what we were just saying now about the Afrikaner community. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is also in terms of apartheid thinking, is the thinking that the Afrikaner uh, applied to themselves about being rural, uh, about moving into this new urban modernity, mass culture, etc., etc., um, makes someone sometimes like someone like uh, Jeffrey Cronier sound a bit like F. R. Levis, actually, mm -hmm. the, 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 the the English critic, um, anxieties about mass culture and so on. That, that those same they that's exactly how they wanted to understand in. By that point, of course, completely atavistic ways, they wanted to understand all South Africa's African communities. They were also understood as rural, as particular ethnicities, and so on. So, in a sense, apartheid was a vision of everybody being a folk. Yes. Uh, uh, whether you're a Kosa speaker or a Zulu speaker or an Afrikaans speaker, you're a, you're a member of the folk. Of course, politically, there had been a modernizing, nationalizing movement within uh, black politics and resistance politics since the turn of the century. And the, the greatest expression of that in 1912 was the ANC, the African National Congress, to set up that, that conception. So that, 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 that permeated the system. So, and it emerges in the sense that they're not only anxious about young Afrikaner men reading porn magazines, they're also anxious about young urban blacks reading a magazine like Drum, which is all about... Um, uh, uh, a kind of an Americanized uh, commercial mass culture. It's not about you as, you know, um, uh, um, interested in your rural cultural practices, you know, which are uh, of a particular kind, um, a kind of an anthropological sense of, of what Isikosa culture would be like. You've now got into this deformed, debasing, modernizing kind. So it's a detribalization, that sort of anxiety. It's a similar playing through in those ways. But have I, I mean, I, I, I hear you, and indeed yeah. I picked up some of that from the book, but am I supposed to take that seriously? Am, am I supposed to believe that they believed this, or that, for example, worrying about drum, which is an interesting point, which I, I did note, uh, has much more to do with closing down the information frontiers? I mean, let, let, let me take a completely different um, analogy. One of the things that finally destroyed the communist regimes in Eastern Europe was the increasing uh, ability of the ordinary guys in Poland, Czechoslovakia, or whatever, to actually see how much different life was for working lads in America, or for that matter, in France. Uh, they could no longer hold the, the, the information barriers. People could see that ordinary people really did have genes, iPods, etc., etc. Now, to what extent is the stuff about drum and, and similar matters uh, an attempt to deny South, young South African blacks the sense that life could be other. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I, I would have thought I've always I've always hesitant about motive because it's so difficult to, to know these things. But I would have thought there were uh, at least as many people opportunistic opportunistically committed to that belief as there were people who genuinely believed that this is what culture was. That you know there was some sort of authentic, uh, 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 you know, uh, linguistic and communal culture that needed to be preserved, and that modernity was in many ways a threat to it. 
Uh, I mean, I think that, that, that there, was, there was quite a widespread conception of, 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 of what, the way things were at that point. But the, but the crucial point also to come back to your, your earlier question and to link that up was that I think um, you, you're quite right. There's, there's, there's issues of certainly false and intimidatious consciousness. And I, I, I would, I think, you know, that the wonderful Lukashian distinction. But it's, I would say that it really probably does come in the, in the late 1950s, in the, course of, in the course of the 50s. And in a sense, the censorship system oddly plays into that because the, the Commission of Inquiry is set up in the mid-1950s. It reports in the late 1950s, in 1957 in fact. The government does absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, typically, governments just sit on reports until Sharpville. Sharpville then happens in March 1960, and then the move starts up to now set up full-blown censorship within South Africa. And I think that's probably an articulation of when you've decisively moved into mendacious consciousness. And in, in a crucial, in an interesting way, I suppose, the moment at which Grand Apartheid under Favut we're talking about here, HF Favut, the, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister at that point, the moment that Grand Apartheid gets set up is the moment that it also becomes mendacious. It's the, it's the moment that they really are starting to articulate the whole notion of Bantistan as a separate nation, nations, you know, territorially defined and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I share your, your suspicion of talking about motivation. I have a particular reason for that, which I'll come to in a moment or so. Um, but all, all ethnic groups, all uh, cultural defence groups, face a problem in articulation that they have to explain to themselves as much as the rest of the world why they're under threat, uh, or rather why it matters that they're under threat. And take another trivial but quite useful example. Uh, the protection of the Welsh language, which is assiduously sought after and often supported by um, UK central government, to people's surprise, uh, is deeply unpopular in large parts of Wales who don't want all those extra hours of Welsh language television, they want what the rest of us want. Um, the notion that people will actually simply stop talking Welsh because it's not very useful and not particularly interesting is, is something that, that has to be defended against. Now, at least there is a Welsh language which has existed for really rather a long time. Um, one of the things that I kept wanting to know about, and since you don't, for good reason, presumably don't really touch on, is how authentic and how long-term authentic the Afrikaans culture, ethnic culture was anyway. I mean, how much of it was there? It's not a very large population. There can't be many writers for a very long time. It's a, obviously a crucial, a crucial point, and it's, and it's one of the re real differences between, say, the ways in which Afrikaners would be thinking about this question and, and against the Welsh. Where, well, the Welsh, there's a long history of the, Wel of the Welsh language, uh, you know, going back centuries. With the Afrikaners, um, of course, the language has its origins in Dutch. Um, and in fact, for Afrikaners, apartheid was initially applied to themselves in relation to Dutch and in relation to British. So British colonial power, Dutch, if you like, cultural, cultural, previously colonial as well, but cultural and linguistic. And the separate movement, the movement towards an Afrikaans language, is the number of language movements that start in the late 19th century. So it's the 1870s, really, when the language has become self-consciously now built into the, the development of a separate ethnic identity, which then eventually gets nationalized, and you get the idea of this ethno-linguistic folk. 
So it really is rather rather young. And in fact, the only the first cultural history of the Afrikaner as a separate ethno-linguistic folk is only published in 1945. That, I, mean, I, I was suspecting the answer must be something along those lines. Uh, and it is quite important because the lack of longevity takes away a very large part of the justification yeah. uh, of it. I mean, if you say to, let's say, to, if you take the Welsh example still, it's not a very good one, but it'll do. If you say to a Welsh language advocate, well, look, the truth is, your 18-year-old guys don't want to speak Welsh. Why should they? Why should we just not let it die? Part of the answer is because it's been around for a long time. Okay, it's not a rational answer, but it's a very powerful emotive answer. We, it's absurd to let the laziness of an 18-year-old um, overcome the fact that there is a huge history, a huge genuine cultural background here. That argument is vastly less available, presumably, to um, an Afrikaans cultural leader. Um, and indeed, I mean, the stuff you, which I've read from your citing, citations, there isn't even much of an effort to, to fake it. Uh, yeah. I mean, one, one thing we do know about in Europe, about um, ethnic uh, appeals, is the, the ethnic history is often wholesale fabricated. Yeah. At least, yeah. as far as I can see, the Afrikaners didn't try to <coughs> create an, an entirely fake cultural history. No. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, they they they, they didn't. Um, it was, but but it was absolutely uh, the, the cultural dimension of the project was was vital. I think the one thing we perhaps need to add here, and uh, which links back to the uh, discussion I had with Elika Boma, um, where the one of the interesting things that starts to happen in the censorship system, and that was for me the most surprising thing, was in fact the people who get control of the censorship system. Uh, are doing so are a particular faction within Afrikaans elite culture, intellectual culture, um, and their anxiety is not simply to protect the folk and to protect that idea of folk culture, but what their main anxiety is and the reason why they're willing to compromise to the extent to be at the heart of what is obviously a repressive system is that they're worried that if uh, that they don't want the clerical elite or the political elite to have control over the definition of what the folk is. They want writers to have the control over... They, they see the writers, if you like, as the guardians of the folk spirit. And the precise reason for that is they are not romantic nationalists on the 19th century mould. They're modernist nationalists because they believe that that spirit, if you like, can never be characterised and never be defined and closed down. It's always open. But the trouble is the clerical and political elite want to close it down and define it and say, this is what we're defending. Yeah. So there's a very, that's, that's the other thing that's very anomalous. But, and yeah. that, that is fascinating. I can think of no analogue to that, by the way, no, in, I think that's in right. any other, yeah. Um, yeah. partly because it's, um, it does seem a little bit of a contradiction. I mean, you're happy with the idea of modernism and so on. But the notion of a, a modernist ethnic appeal um, is, let's say, intellectually problematic. Well, they, they, um, had a, they had a term for this position, as it was called, in Afrikaans, is loyale verset, which is, you can basically translate as loyal opposition or loyal protest. So there's a, a basic commitment to the idea of the Afrikaner as a folk, that's how you understand the community, only in those terms. But they are protesting against, if you like, the dominant definitions of that. Is, I mean, is this slightly a tangent, but it, it's just a question that was nagging me last night when I was looking back over your book. You, you, you know the way sociologists 
do tend to focus on the fact that the culture has been defended, our high culture, yeah. um, and take actually rather little notice of what the guy in the street is reading. Is uh, Africa, or was at the stage, Afrikaans culture entirely high culture? Were there people reading, writing just ordinary thrillers or whatever in Afrikaans? Absolutely. In fact, that was one of the motivating forces. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, for me, this otherwise entirely boring and dry, actually it's not, it is dry and, and dull, Commission of Inquiry in the 1950s, the Cronier Commission of 1956, into undesirable publication. One of the things that was so fascinating about it as a document is that when they, they first of all, they, they focused so much on Afrikaans literature. That was odd. And uh, the second thing was, really major anxiety was the fact that too many Afrikaans writers were borrowing crime fiction, thriller models of writing from America. It was the Americanization, which they saw as the vulgarization of Afrikaans culture. I picked up with pleasure that Mickey Spillane Mickey was a big exactly. Figure, but, this um, is the big problem. And uh, so even at that level of, of this commission of inquiry, they are trying to pass themselves off as the reason why we're setting up the system is to defend the high integrity of Afrikaans literary culture because it's being eroded by these imports and, and, the, and the mimicking imports, uh, the, the Afrikaans popular writers mimicking this stuff, which is being disseminated by, by new publishing houses within South Afrikaans publishing houses that are going for a mass market. I mean, it does circle around it, but you will, presumably you know, it's an old book, but uh, Richard Hoggart's famous The Uses of Literacy. Sure, yeah. One of the problems about that book when it came out was it started making good intellectual liberals somewhat worried about freedom of speech when they realised, what, or education if you like, when they realised what, what happened when you educated somebody so they left school at 15 but able to read. What they chose to read was not what they wanted to defend. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and that must have been a real problem. For, yeah, um, if you, yeah. you don't have a big literature... It's under threat internally by people writing what the guys actually want to read. Exactly. So it's a little bit of a power play by... Not a little bit. <laughs> a large bit of power play. <laughs> yeah. I can go back to the, the reason I initially asked about the motivation, the false consciousness thing. It, it's, I agree that we can't easily talk about that in global terms. But there is a particular motivation question here. Um, and one of the things that makes all your work fascinating... The censorship machine didn't just happen, it had to be staffed. There had to be people, and I know you've spent a large part of it digging into this, it had to be staffed by people being prepared to be the censors. Now, I can understand how, whether genuine or not, at least enough to keep your own soul quiet, you could accept the role of censor when it was somehow or other tied up with cultural purity, etc., etc. But when we get to much later cases... Uh, let's say in the 80s and so on, and I, I, I just marked this the book at one particular one. You get a case, this involved um, the prosecution of a book, oh, sorry, in English terms, the prosecution of a book, um, where some black was um, initiated, I'm quoting, into the well-documented horrors of state violence when he's called on to help investigate. Now, the, the people actually writing the censorship reports there were nonetheless prepared to say this was awful and it was a complete, um, you know, a completely false picture of uh, South African culture that was being presented. Uh, at that stage, it is at best mendacious consciousness, isn't it? In other words, the motivation of, of the actors who made the system work must have changed. Either it's a different sort of person, I don't know, you probably have data on this, but I'm afraid I haven't picked it up, a whole different sort of guy becomes a censor, 
or at the very least, the story in the sense that tells himself at home at night must have changed radically. I think uh, it's probably to do with the division between the security senses and the literary senses. So, for instance, what you're talking about there is the um, the shift in anxiety uh, in the late in the late seventies, actually in this in the nineteen seventies. Uh, from the, in the sixties, there'd been lots of anxiety, simply as you would expect, about racial mix, mix, mixing. That was the kind of the chief mm-hmm. political, obvious moral moral stroke. Miscegenation. Miscegenation, exactly. Then in the seventies, in the, the issue becomes depicting what's going on in prison cells and torture and the, mm-hmm. and those those claims. What's interesting is it's in terms of mendacious consciousness. It's the security censors who are who are. I suppose, unsurprisingly, the greatest articulators of the idea that this is a deformed notion of, this is not true, yes, this is not, 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 not what's going on. What you find, and so, in fact, I think that the bit that you were reading there was a, a, a political philosophy uh, professor at the University of Cape Town called A.H. Murray, mm-hmm. who is certainly of the view that this is simply false. And just articul- an intelligent man, but, I mean, wh- what on earth was he, was he thinking about? What, what was he reading because then at the same time you'll find in other contexts literary censors saying, hang on, but the reason why we can't ban this is this stuff's being reported every day in the newspapers. So there's an extraordinary kind of schizophrenia, if you like, even within the censors themselves, between the people who are sort of obviously in some deep sense mendacious about the world that they're living in, and then the people who are saying, well, hang on, you know. Now this is why the, um, what Americans would call this book, redeeming social value, social merit stuff comes to play much more of a part because yeah. you can't deny that, people, that blacks are being treated like this, but there may not be any good literary reason for saying it. Is that, the, is that how it works? It's well, the, when the literary censors say, literary censors defending a work which they deme- deem to be um, great literature, which is about torture, say, say for instance, J.M. Uh, Kutzi is Waiting for the Barbarians, mm-hmm. um, they, they're going to say, well, um, well again, I, I, as soon as I'm saying this, I, they're, they're, of course, counter-examples, because the whole thing is, is, is you know, in many ways arbitrary. But they will be saying, say, because this is a great work of literature, uh, we can let it through, because anyway, it's not saying anything more than the newspapers are saying. Oh, I see that's how it works. And yes. then, but, no, but then equally, it can work the other way around. They can say, well, hang on, this is a great work of literature, so, for instance, Nadine Gordimer's Late Bourgeois World in the 1960s. This is a great work of literature, uh, which is reporting exactly what's going on in the newspapers every day. But the trouble is, it's literature, and therefore it's reporting it that much more powerfully. So it's going to be dangerous, and we have to ban it. So they banned that. So, but this is, again, partly to do with the kind of absurdity of the, the decision-making process as to what factors would be counted in some cases and who was making the decision in other cases. Is there a shift? It's a straightforward factual question. Is there a shift in the sort of people who stop, who staff these positions as uh, it gets later on? Yes, there's a major change in the nature of the... There's, a, there's a, a remarkable degree of continuity, it has mm. to be said. But the structure changes dramatically in the mid-1970s. Until from the, from the 60s to the mid-1970s, you basically have a, uh, a fairly small elite board effectively making all the decisions. From the mid 1970s, you have a administrative bureaucracy and then a devolved series of committees that are making the decisions. And because some of those committees are security committees and some are literary committees, 
the decisions can be very different. So it is, it is a, there's a big change. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, shall, we, shall we move to my other uh, yes, yeah, particular yeah, interest, yeah. which is, I mean, I, I know that, unlike many people in your field, you actually have read a good deal of social science stuff, and you're, you're familiar with what in my trade we call the new institutionalism, um, an effort to explain, describe and explain, in my case, political behaviour, uh, in terms of the roles that the institutions themselves, parliament, courts or whatever, um, impose on people. So, I mean, my own work on, on courts, um, you can't but look at, if you're a member of a court, if you're a judge on a court, you're not just a judge in a traditional way, you're a very specified um, inhabitant of a particular role in a quite complexly articulated institution. You basically have a job to do. And a lot of our, at least the way I do it, a lot of the explanation is carried out in terms of people trying to come to terms, trying to understand what it is, what their job is. You're a judge. Okay, but what is it to be a judge? And then making decisions in terms of what's often called um, a, a logic of appropriateness. Such a resolution to a case is the one determined by the appropriateness of it given my job description, as simple as that. There's another form of institutionalism, which is on new institutions, usually called a rational choice institutionalism, where the institution is seen effectively as, um, as a playing field or a battlefield, if you like. The institutional rules set up um, a, a schedule of payoffs for, for particular rational actions. So the US Senate becomes uh, the playing field in which individual senators maximise their own utility by using the rules uh, according to the preset um, incentive structure. And, I'm, and they're not incompatible. Well, actually, I think they are incompatible. Most of my colleagues think they're not incompatible. Uh, but there are two different takes on seeing seeing the world as institutional. Now, for most people, the notion of literature just <laughs> has nothing to do with this. But if you take a book like yours, it's impossible to say that. There are clear roles here. There are institutions. There are censors, there are writers, there are publishers, mm. uh, there are literary critics. Mm. And you don't go to work in the morning as a literary critic without going into a newspaper institution, without having a job description, perhaps an inchoate one, but you are playing a role. You're clearly, play, clearly playing a role as a censor. You're probably paid by the, on civil service rates or something. You may well have, in this case, a detailed written job description. But all of these, have, they are roles in complex institutions. I haven't dared say that to be a writer is to be a role player. And I, let, let me ask you that first of all. Does it make any sense at all to apply that sort of institutional analysis to the actual creators of literature, to the writers, the poets, the, or are they, are they outside it feeding into? Uh, no, I think, I think it's a, a, a vital thing. Um, and uh, for me, certainly, um, I was driven to your field and uh, in particular to what you call the new institutionalism associated with people like March and Olson mm -hmm. in the mid-1980s. It's where, where, it, where it came in. And I, I was just particularly struck by the things that they were saying where what they saw themselves as reacting against with, you know, um, uh, if you like certain kinds of rational choice theory on one side, and then often certain kinds of fairly vulgarized forms of Marxist thinking. That, and the third thing was rampant behaviorism. Right, okay, right. And, and rampant behaviorism. For, for me, uh, coming from within, I, I, what they were saying, but coming from within thinking about literary studies and how that had been developing, I, I suppose I was caught between, on the one hand, uh, 
uh, although most people would probably disavow this, but nonetheless a methodological individualism that was, uh, I think, heavily invested in certain conception, certain liberal kinds of thinking. On the other hand, there was a, a kind of a reductive sociologism derived from certain kinds of Marxist no, thinking. Sure. So that, you know, in, in, the, in the Marxist model, you just think about what's the class of the author on the crudest model of that. Whereas the, uh, on the other model, we're just thinking about the author as this wonderful, uh, supple, endlessly nuanced individual. And you try to ignore the fact that somebody owns the publishing house. That's right. And you have no interest at all in institutions and, and, and how, how they work. So, so for me, um, actually getting out of that kind of impasse, on the one hand, reductive sociologism, on the other hand, reductive individualism, um, the inst putting the institution in place, which I, I derive partly from uh, French sociologists like Pierre Bourdieu, but also mm -hmm. from what was going on in a field called book history, where it was just the history of the book was just taking more, paying more attention to publishers and how they work. So adding all of that into the mix suddenly was a way out of that, that kind of intellectual impasse. Um, and then, of course, yes, I had to, you have to start to understand a literature as an institution in terms of who, who are the guardians of the literary space in a culture at a certain point. It's publishers, it's reviewers, um, it's literary critics, it's academics, it's archivists, it's librarians. All of these kind of things intersect to create and sustain a literary culture. But then, of course, yeah, it then opens up the question about writers themselves as, uh, as role players within that institution. And I, I would say it's, uh, yes, of course, you need to understand writers as role players, as, 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 as uh, playing, if you like, scripted parts. But maybe what's interesting about it from a writer's point, the writer's point of view, is unlike, say, the publisher, where, of course, the role will be evolving and changing and getting, and, and, you know, over time. You know, it won't be static. But a relative degree of, uh, uh, of stasis on the part of the role of the publisher. Whereas what seems to be for certainly a lot of writers, but not all of them, is that the role itself is often in crisis, is put seriously in question. Writers will understand themselves as inheriting a particular conception of say, what it is to be a novelist, what it means to perform that role, to be some sort of say, you know, in, in, the, in the early 20th century, to be some Victorian sage, you know, who's commenting on our life and times. That's the role of the writer. And a lot of writers uh, will come along and, and be very uneasy with that role, with the part that's been scripted for them by the literary culture that they've inherited. And they will radically reject that role. Not only sociologically, as it were, in terms of I poo-poo that particular conception of the writer, but even in terms of their writing practice. So it's not that the role is somehow external to how they write, but that they, they, they develop their writing in a certain way. So, for instance, I mean, this is a very banal point about the modernist novel, but, for instance, the modernist novel, uh, people like Joyce, Wolfe, and so on, try to strip away the sort of third-person narrating sage-like voice from the Victorian novel, and they remove that authority from the novel altogether, and all you get instead is plunged into this kind of internal and external dialogues of particular characters with no authorial commentary. The, I mean, the, the tricky thing for me, and I'm, I'm, as this goes on, I'm feeling more and more a sociologist and less and less um, interested in literature. Um, <laughs> but from the point of view of the sociologist, see, our, our, our use of, of role theory and so on isn't, as it were, just an extra or an option or whatever. It's that we don't really have any very clear sense 
of there being anything else to the individual other than the role. Yeah. The problem with your, your model, and I mean, I, I course back to your understanding, um, is that it seems to connote something, some core thing called writing. Um, and then you don't like the way writing is, is, is currently um, uh, institutionalized, so you do something else. But <laughs> it's terribly unclear to me what, except on some really atavistic level, the desire to scribble, um, what, what to be a writer is, unless it's to be a writer of this, a writer of that, a writer who sees his job as, and so on. Uh, the notion of rejecting other existing models to do it in your own way is... Okay, there are parallels. I mean, the area I know much more about is the history of art, yeah. where you get the slow, but by now total, shift of the artist from being the artisan who makes things to satisfy a market to somebody who regards the market with contempt. And indeed, it becomes... Um, uh, and that you just proved what an awful um, Philistine you are if you want to buy something that you would like as opposed to what the artist tells you is his work. But I mean, that, and I suppose it's a bit, it's a bit like that with literature. But I, I do tend to feel that that there are pretty fixed roles. Okay, the roles can change. You can develop, and, uh, and you're right with the publisher. I mean, publishers may develop their role, but what we're talking about then is deciding to go into. Um, mixed media deciding to um, sell um, or to produce podcasts rather than just books. It's still the activity. There's no doubt about what publishing is. What, what, how does it work for, for, for writers? Is there this sort of inner core of writerliness? No, definitely. I, I would have thought that that's, if you start to talk about an inner core of writerliness, that would be getting into some sort of version of individualism again. I feel that's sort of creeping in. Uh, the, the two things I'd say about that. One, one on the one hand, uh, there's definitely a sense, as we see in the history of writing, is that these um, reactions against established notions of the role are not are often collective. They're often groups of writers mm -hmm. who are forming collectivities, who are forming parts of movements. So this is again where a sociological oh, analysis is indispensable. Really. But, and they tend to be often the thing, or even though they are writing very, very differently in, in all sorts of singular ways, nonetheless the, the challenge that they're posing to an established notion of the writer's role is rather, rather similar. Is there something that's, there's not a core writerliness that's driving that, that it's hugely overdetermined, those changes of roles, but it is a, a, a clear repudiation of the established role, and therefore, of course, the established expectations of the culture, of what they're expecting from you as a writer, for your readers, but also publishers, all the other people who are the guardians of that institution at that time. They're, they're, and they're therefore find, some of them are finding it very difficult to get published because people just don't accept this as, as legitimate uh, or even, no, no, sometimes as legitimate, certainly as commercially viable. So they would, they would often be struggling and some of them would therefore self-publish initially and then be picked up by the culture. Well, sociologically, it is interesting because the only way you can get away with this is to live inside a culture which has, in many ways, sort of permanent knee-jerk guilt feeling so that publishers and readers themselves feel a bit guilty about not liking this strange, weird thing by this guy called Joyce. Yeah. Um, uh, the reader will make himself plough through the all two million pages of that book, yeah. uh, the publisher will publish it, even if he's a bit worried about the balance sheet, yeah. out of a sort of cultural cringe almost. Yeah. That? And that's what, that's what, um, what visual artists have succeeded. They've managed to invert 
if you like, the power balances mm. in, in, in the whole art game. Mm -hmm. So that the rest of us go around a bit, a bit frightened of, 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 of ignoring the man of... Well, you can see my point, but yeah. writers are getting there or trying to well, get there? Well, the, the, the interesting thing is when you look at it over a longer, a longer time span, is, you, know, you look at, say, some, yes, so something like uh, Joyce's Ulysses emerges in 1922, uh, you can't get it published in 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 Britain because of for legal reasons because it's obscene, uh, and uh, <laughs> so it's published in Paris by a small publishing company initially for a very very select group of subscribers. It's in fact more or less published by subscription initially. So it's a, of course now the first edition of Ulysses is highly prized and incredibly expensive. So to see seen from a point of view of economics, this is an, a long-term economic cycle, if you like. The, 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 the book gains its value in that way. But flash forward to the 1960s, Penguin brings out a mass-market paperback edition of Joyce's Ulysses. It's now in a completely different world. Uh, it's no longer this uh, book that seemed to be uh, a threat to, I mean, one of the first reviewers called it literary Bolshevism, you know, <laughs> a, a threat to the social order. It's now widely available as a mass market paperback feeding into the new university system because it's being prescribed on yeah. university courses, become part of mass education. So it's, it's moving over time all the time and, and writers' relationship to the culture is constantly dynamic in that sense. I mean, I, mean, I understand that for one, it's not that mysterious. One can perfectly well unpick the, the causal mechanisms. It does involve particular graduate students reading books, beginning to be assistant professors, getting to be head of departments, writing curricula, more and more generations of graduates, all of whom probably loathe the book, but you've invested so much time in it that you then... I mean, yeah, I mean, one can unpick it, mm. but, it, but the consequence, if you like, from a meta-sociology is what you've actually done is invert a power balance. Yeah. You've gone from a situation where willing readers and commercially oriented publishers find themselves having to do something quite different. Um, the fact that we can spell out the mechanism doesn't make it any less of an inversion of, it is essentially an inversion of a, of a power balance. Now, I think that's right, but again what you would need in order to understand that is, is uh, quite a complex and elaborate oh, institutional analysis. Very, so, very I mean, much so. That's uh, where I'm, I'd, be, I'd stick with the institutional. Oh, I, I, yeah. Sorry, I, I, perhaps I, I, I misspoke. Yeah. I wasn't, I mean, I can give you a fact, I know we have in private conversation, one of my intellectual heroes, there's an American sociologist called Goffman, yeah. who wrote about what he called total institutions, prisons, mental hospitals, and so on, and makes the point that the apparent power balance you'd expect, warders being in charge, doctors being in charge, is often completely false. Mm. Because put yourself, or put somebody in the position of being mental hospital inmate, prisoner, there is so little to lose that you're not bound, you have no incentive to play by any rules, and they end up, in many contexts, actually wielding the power. Um, you, you can completely throw the nice doctor in the white coat by responding in a totally inappropriate, unpredictable way. Mm -hmm. But he is bound by rules. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I just cite that as an example of, of a detailed institutional analysis. I, I've no doubt that we need to do that. Um, and I'm intrigued that um, literature does work. And I, th I think that, but that would, be, again, be quite an interesting way of thinking about literary history, because it would be, if you like, Initially, these writers start off as being, you know, marginal, eccentric, odd, um, and then there is an inversion of power over the time. But then, in, in many ways, for the new generation of writers that emerges, that becomes the problem, because now these figures are associated with what, if you like, is the established 
accepted notion of, of, of the literary culture, and we can't, we can't identify with that. Absolutely, but it seems to follow out one rule of sociology, which is there is no such thing as a successful counter-revolution. Yeah. Because what you can't do, and again, I mean, I from art history, what you get nowadays are a few people plaintively saying, there isn't really anything wrong with direct painting of objects. <laughs> and then people say, yes, there is. Bang. Yeah, yeah. Um, you couldn't really go back, could you? to being a 19th century sage type novelist, um, informing the public of what they should believe. Uh, the the counter-revolution isn't available. It's a ratchet effect. Every time you move one stage, yeah. that's it. Or Except I would say that, it, well, one of the things is that those sort of expectations can survive a long time. Yes. Uh, you know, you get them built into prizes, for instance. You know, I mean, like the Nobel Prize for Literature, you know, that grows out of the 19th century. It's given to writers as... As, as great sages and so on and so forth. But, but the prize survives and so... But, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about, actually, the, the, it brings us to the South Africa, but, I mean, J.M. Kutsia was very uneasy about the implications of being awarded the Nobel Prize because of its history. And certainly he, he, he commented in public, I, I would be very uncomfortable in the role that the prize is, is in a sense, ascribing to me um, as, as some sort of Victorian sage. Um, but uh, so it survives in prizes, survives in people's expectations, it survives in the way reviewers think about and review things. But also, in a sense, literary cultures are always complex because there is, yes, an avant-garde constantly changing the rules in some ways. But there are all sorts of popular forms of writing where, where you know, older ideas will survive for quite a long time. So the idea of, a, of you know, if, if you like, in some, uh, um, you know, good, uplifting, popular literature, the idea of the author as, a, as somebody who can relay important moral insights about the world, you know, that would still be around. Oh, and of course, I, I did want to bring ultimately back to South Africa, right? if you like, asking about the role that the creators of literature, whether writers, poets, playwrights, or whatever, inside the Afrikaans community, um, how conscious they were, and this would, would not be false consciousness or mendacious consciousness, it would be simply accepting this is what it was to be. How much do you think they did take on a sense that their job as a writer was to promulgate certain values and so on, uh, so that, if you like, an acquiescence in censorship which upheld that would be, in a sense, quite acceptable. You could go home at night and tell yourself the story without any cringe, as it were. But the interesting thing is, going back to where we, where we were talking about a moment ago, is... Uh, in fact, that idea of the writer, the role of the writer, as it were, to uh, promulgate certain values of the community, uh, which also meant that the writer, therefore, had a certain responsibility to the community, mm -hmm. not to upset the community's values too much. That was the mainstream conservative view of what the writer was. The group that I've called the folk avant-garde and the group that actually had a very strong influence over the censorship system rejected that view out, out of hand because it, in a sense, rejected the idea that values weren't always up for question and always in the process of being made. You, you, you're assuming that values are fixed and that, that they are there to be defended. So it takes you back to your modernist exactly. um, ethnicity. Exactly. So, uh, and we can part with my saying, I really believe that's a contradiction in terms. I couldn't agree more. <laughs>